0: The following message is brought to you by George Lawson Jr., pastor and Bible teacher with Baltimore Bible Church. We will be reading from the New American Standard Bible. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So now let's open our Bibles and follow along with Pastor George as we loose the scriptures and let them speak.
1: I remember uh, when I first started uh, full-time pastoral ministry uh, back in 2010, and uh, I was hired to be a student ministries pastor in Little Rock, Arkansas. And I remember after I was shown my office, and uh, you know they gave me a laptop and a monitor, and you know I had some bookshelf space. And I remember uh, they said, "Well, here's your office, and uh, you know we'll see you later." And I remember just being paralyzed. And uh, I was just wondering, like, you know, what if, have what if I just stepped into? And there was a list of activities that they had already prepared before I even, you know, stepped foot on the, the campus. There was a list of activities that I was responsible for now that I was the new student ministries pastor. Uh, there was a fall retreat, a spring retreat, a summer mission trip. They had lake days, lockouts. I had 175 students that I had to get to know. Uh, they had senior and junior high discipleship, I had a volunteer staff of 25 people, volunteer staff, I had a secretary, and in the youth room, there was a squeaky belt above the youth room in the the air conditioner, so I'm starting on day one, and I'm thinking, what in the world do I do first? (laughs) I've got a list of things to do, you know, a list of of people that I don't even know who they are, and... uh, so the first thing that I did was the easy thing. I climbed up on the roof and fixed the squeaky belt <laughs> on the air conditioner. <laughs> but, uh, but along with that, there came all kinds of invitations of things to do that came from the outside. I started getting emails of people wanting to partner together with me for the sake of gospel work. Can you partner together with us for gospel work? I remember after becoming a pastor here, Baltimore Bible Church, I face similar questions. Uh, there were people who invited me to fundraisers, uh, invited me to prayers with uh, other denominations, other pastors. Uh, there was an opportunity to start a food bank, mentorship programs, community programs. I was invited to participate in a youth sports league. And many times as people came to me with these requests, they would also present these as gospel work. We'd like you to partner together with us for gospel work. And sometimes, some of the things that I was invited to had nothing explicit about the gospel in it. It was just participate with us because we're cleaning up this community or we're handing out food over here. Is there an opportunity to share the Lord? No, but this is kingdom work. It's gospel work. Can you partner together with us in this gospel work? And when I would ask about the gospel Uh, oftentimes I'd get the response, and you might have heard it, it's attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, preach the gospel at all times if necessary. Use words. We don't know if St. Francis of Assisi actually said that. There's some debate over whether or not he said that. I actually found out that he's also, uh, uh, that San Francisco is named after St. Francis of Assisi. Didn't know that. But St. Francis is not the authority on the gospel. (laughs) Even if he did say that, St. Francis is not the authority, the Apostle Paul is, and there's no better book to turn to than the book of Romans to understand what is, in fact, gospel work. So, as we look at the introduction to this book, the book of Romans, we're still in the introduction to the book of Romans, we'll be in the introduction to the book until we finally get all the way down to verse 16 and 17, where finally Paul gives us the theme for the book Uh, Romans 1 16 and 17 where Paul says for I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith but before Paul gets there he works his way through 15 verses of lengthy introduction to the book and these first 15 verses aren't just fillers. It's not like you know when you go to the to the restaurant to a restaurant and uh, you know they immediately bring you out plates of bread and glasses of water to fill you up before you even get to the meal. It's not like that. Even in the introduction, it's meaty. This is not just filler for the main course. Even the introduction of the book of Romans is meaty. And in the space of just the first four verses in the book of Romans, we're introduced to the gospel of God, the priority of ministry, the nature of Scripture the inspiration of Scripture, the dual authorship of Scripture, the deity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, the kingdom of Christ, the lordship of Christ, the incarnation of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, so Christmas and Easter, both covered in just verses 1 through 4, and the doctrine of the Holy Trinity all in four verses. So if you think I'm going to cover all of that today, you have more faith than I do, okay? I mean, there is so much that's packed into just four verses of the first chapter of the book of Romans. And all of that is before Paul even says, grace to you and peace. He hasn't even formally said hello yet. And he's already diving into the deep end of doctrine. And it's like just the word gospel for Paul was enough that just open up the floodgates. Like he just has to go further further. He can't move on. He can't just mention the gospel and move on. He has to stop. He has to expand on the topic because this was the focus of his life and ministry. And there's no way to understand the heart of the Apostle Paul if you don't understand the message that he preached. He bleeds the gospel. And that's what he was set apart for. And this is where we pick up where we left off last week. And just briefly to to review where we were last week, we observed uh, last week that Paul was introducing himself to the churches of Rome, and he introduced himself, first of all, as a bondservant of Christ. Look at that in verse 1, Paul, a bondservant of Christ. Uh, Somebody who was a bondservant uh, was subject to the will of another. He's one who gave himself over to the will of another. And this is the way that Paul viewed himself. He was bound to the will of the master, which is why it's translated in the NASB as the bondservant. He's bound to the will of the master. He was under the yoke of the master. And if you were under the yoke as a slave, you didn't represent yourself. Nothing you had belonged to you. You couldn't go where you wanted. You couldn't work where you wanted. The master decided all of that for you. And Paul concluded that that's the perfect description of who I am. I am a bondservant. I am bound to the will of the master. And I have given up the rights to myself. I've denied myself. And all that I do and all that I am is in service to Jesus Christ. And that's true for every one of us the moment we come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Like like I said last week, you know, this idea that you can come to Jesus as your Savior and wait until later to make him Lord or to recognize him or acknowledge him as Lord— is uh, totally foreign to the scriptures. From the time you come to faith in Christ, he is Lord. He's in charge. He's your master. So you're not coming to assert your rights when you become a Christian. You're coming to abandon your rights. In Matthew 16, 24, Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, that's the introduction to Christ, if you want to come after me, you want to you follow me, deny yourself. He must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So Paul understood his ministry is a service to Christ. I'm a slave and he is the master. He is the Lord. Romans 1, 14 and 15, he says, I'm under obligation. I don't, I don't get to decide this. I'm under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise, to the foolish. So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. I'm, I'm eager to fulfill my obligation. I'm a servant to the master. But not only did he see his ministry as a service to Christ, he also understood his ministry to be faithfully carrying out his mission of Christ, carrying out the mission of Christ. He was sent by Jesus, which is what it means to be an apostle. The term apostle means a messenger with authority, somebody who's been sent on a mission with authority. It's more than just being sent out. One lexicon says it carries the, the further thought of authorization, I've been authorized, by Christ. I'm his representative. I've been commissioned with a message, with a task. It was used in classical Greek for uh, naval expeditions, being sent out on an official mission. So Paul was officially sent out with delegated authority from Christ. There are many disciples, but only a few who could call themselves apostles. And Paul even recognized that he's an exceptional case. In 1 Corinthians fifteen eight, he calls himself one born out of due time, untimely born. I'm abnormally born. I, I don't even belong here. I'm like, here's last of all. But he was included in that group of men who spoke with the authority of Christ himself. So Paul is ministering with the authority of Jesus Christ as a representative. And when we accept Paul's words, we're accepting Christ's words. We're accepting Jesus's words. So it's not like, you know, just I want to hear Jesus but forget about Paul. No, you, you hear Jesus through Paul. Because Paul communicates Jesus to you. And that's why he says in 1 Thessalonians that I thank God that you accepted, that you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which performs its work in you who believe. So you can't keep Jesus and get rid of Paul. Paul's the representative, he speaks on behalf of Christ, and he writes this book, the book of Romans, by the authority of the Lord of the church. And Paul's writings, along with the other writings of the Apostles, provided the foundation for the church. So we're standing on God's authority when we're standing on the scriptures. And uh, we're not called to be apostles, but we all are called to be ambassadors, right? We're going to represent what what they've said. You know, so it's our job just to get in line. You know, Ephesians 2.20 says, having been built on the foundation of apostles, prophets, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone, and it's our responsibility just to get in line. You know, I want to build my life on what they've taught, you know, on the apostles' doctrine. And that's what we hope to do here at Baltimore Bible Church, just building line upon line. And uh, finally, Paul introduces himself as one who's set apart, set apart for the gospel of God. So uh, he's a servant of Christ, Uh, he's uh, been sent out by Christ, and he's also set apart unto the gospel of God concerning Christ. And uh, this is where Paul just gets lost in the glory of the good news because this is what he's been set apart for. So you find it again just at the end of verse 1. He's set apart for the gospel of God. To be set apart means to be marked off by boundaries. It was a word that was used in the, the Greek Old Testament to speak about natural boundaries like rivers, rivers, or national boundaries that separated nations from one another. But it was also used in a positive sense for religious consecration, that I've been marked off, set apart for religious service, like the priestly service. We've been consecrated, set apart for the service of God. And that's the way that it's used here. He's dedicated, he's consecrated for the service of God. And just like the priests of the Old Testament were set apart and dedicated to the temple service, Paul considered himself to be set apart and dedicated to gospel service. And the sacrifices that he brought to the Lord were not the, you know, the the dead sacrifices of, you know, bulls and goats, but he would bring to the Lord the converted sinners. I'm bringing to you the Gentiles. Look over at uh, Romans chapter 15 just to uh, further drive this point home in Romans chapter 15. Take a look at verse 15. Starting at verse 15, he says, But I have written very boldly to you on some points, so as to remind you again, because of the grace that was given me from God, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. And what does he do? Ministering as a priest the gospel of God. So just like the priests were dedicated to the temple service, he says, I'm dedicated, but I'm a priest of the gospel of God. God. So that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And this is what Paul considered himself to be separated unto, unto the Lord to do. Uh, Just after Paul's encounter with Christ on the road to Damascus, if you remember, Ananias was called to lay hands on him. You know, at first he didn't even want to do it because it's like, hey, I've heard a lot about this guy. He's done a lot of damage. He's out there putting people to death, Lord. And you want me to go lay hands on him? It's like, yes, I want you to go. God says, Acts 9, 15, the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine. He set apart to the work that I've called him to do. He's, he's my instrument now. I use him where I want, and he's dedicated to this, to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. He, he set apart for this. Reflecting on his own conversion before King Agrippa, Paul remembered the words of the Lord In Acts 26, 16, he says, but get up, stand on your feet. This is what the Lord told him. For this purpose, I've appeared to you to appoint you a minister and a witness. You've been separated out. I'm taking you now as my own instrument. You've got work to do. And then remember after a period of time in Antioch, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. It's time to go to work. Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And that work was preaching the gospel. And that was in the predetermined plan and sovereignty of God. Paul, Paul even considered himself being set apart for this work from the mother's womb. Like, like God already knew that this is what I was going to be appointed to. He, he ordained this from the time I was in the mother's womb. Flip over to Galatians, Galatians chapter 1. Just to talk about the way that he, he saw this, this work that he, he did before the Lord. Galatians chapter 1, look at verse 15. It says, but when God who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. And then he goes on to talk about how he received this directly from the Lord himself. But he says, I've been dedicated to this. Even from my mother's womb, I've been set apart for this service. And what is the service? The service is gospel service. It's gospel work. That's what I've been set apart to do. The word gospel means good news. Euangelion in Greek. It was a word that was used in the Greek and Roman context for victory in battle. They used it for the birth of an emperor. You know, There's actually an inscription when Caesar Augustus was born uh, for his birthday. They said, the birthday of the God was for the world, the beginning of tidings of joy. That's how they looked at the birth of their emperors. This is good news for the world. And they called their emperors God. There was actually you know, emperor worship that happened in the the Greek and Roman context. But Paul understood this word gospel in the Old Testament context, the context of God's salvation, God's salvation for his people. Isaiah 52, 7 says, How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says, Zion, your God reigns. Your God is in charge. Your God is victorious. You can rest in him. And particularly in the book of, of Romans, it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. This is the good news, the power of God for salvation. So it's good news. And this is what Paul is going to talk about throughout this book. It's good news to all who accept that they're condemned sinners. Accept that fact. That in the sight of a holy and a righteous God, that you stand condemned. And he'll spend the first three chapters of the book of Romans convincing you that you're worthy of condemnation. Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. It's good news to accept the fact of what God says about who you are. I've got to recognize the bad news first before I can accept the good news. I've got to see myself as condemned in the sight of a holy God before I can reach out for his grace and mercy. It's good news to all who believe that Jesus died on the cross as satisfaction of God's wrath, payment for your sins. Jesus Christ was the payment, the satisfaction of God's wrath and hatred against sin. Romans 5, 9, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him and that his righteousness is the only righteousness, the righteousness of Christ is the only righteousness acceptable to God on your behalf. Romans 3.22 says even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. You gain righteousness through Christ. It's accredited to your account if you believe and trust in Christ. And it's good news to all those who confess Jesus is Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead. And that's the good news that Paul says I'm separated for. I'm consecrated for. I'm I'm dedicated to this. It's glad tidings of great joy and it's worth Paul's dedication and consecration, and it's his priestly service. And before we move on from this point, this is basic, but it's clarifying. The gospel is a message. The gospel is a message. The gospel is a message. And I know that sounds basic. It's embarrassing, but how basic that sounds. But the gospel is a message. And Paul could dedicate his life to the promotion and proclamation of a message and trust that he had finished the race and accomplished what Christ gave him to do. In Acts chapter 20 in verse 24, Paul says, I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus. And what was this ministry? To testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. To testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. If Paul's race included ending racism, solving worldwide hunger, peace in the Middle East, dismantling oppressive governments, literacy for all, equal pay for equal work, government health care, free school lunches, Would Paul be able to say, I finished my course in the ministry that I've received from the Lord? Would he be able to say that? Could Paul say in 2 Timothy 4-7, I fought the good fight, I finished the course, I have kept the faith? And that's not to say that Paul never ministered to physical needs or that he never addressed any of the ills of society, but the ministry that he was separated unto and dedicated to and consecrated to, was a message. The gospel is a message, and there's a variety of of good and even necessary works that you can get involved in as an individual believer, as a, a member of the Church of God, as a, a citizen in your community. That you can adorn the gospel of God. You know, you can give it a platform. You can you can you know make it attractive. You know, the message attractive. You can you can do that, but that can't be confused with gospel work, or what some people call kingdom work, which is basically anything. They just roll it in there. It's kingdom work, kingdom work, gospel work. And a lot of the work, like I said, again, doesn't even include the gospel at all. No gospel message, just people trying to make other people comfortable, feel better, promote moral living. And the concern to make this world a better place chokes out the word, and it becomes unfruitful. You know, so you can just sway back and forth and, you know, we are the world. We are the children. We are the ones who make a better day, right? So let's start giving. Kingdom work, right? Isn't that gospel work? The answer is no. If it doesn't include the gospel, it's not gospel work. If it doesn't include the gospel, it's not gospel work. The gospel needs to be promoted highlighted, proclaimed, made explicit, made clear. This is why I do what I do. It's not just because I'm a good citizen. It's not because I I just want to love people and, you know, I want to make people comfortable and happy. No, I do what I do for the sake of Jesus Christ. And that has to be explicit. If you want to do gospel work, the gospel has to be explicit. I remember a H.B. Charles, he told the story about a church, and on the side of the building, it says, We preach Christ crucified. And there was a vine growing up, up the side of the building, and it says, Over a couple years, it started taking over the sign, and after a while, it just says, We preach Christ. And he says, And after a while, the vine kept growing, and it just ended up saying, We preach. And there's a lot of churches. That need that sign on their building. Because they don't preach Christ and they don't preach Christ crucified, they just preach. We preach. If the gospel's not included, it's not gospel work. In their book, What is the Mission of the Church? authors Kevin DeYoung and Greg Gilbert write, we are concerned that in all our passion for renewing the city or tackling social problems, we run the risk of marginalizing the one thing that makes Christian mission Christian namely making disciples of Jesus Christ. We want the church to remember that there is something worse than death and something better than human flourishing if we hope only for renewed cities and restored bodies in this life. We are of all people the most to be pitied. Gospel work has to include the gospel. And Paul, like the apostles in Jerusalem, devoted himself to the ministry of prayer and the word. And that was the ministry that God promised to establish in Romans 16 25 it says now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ and Christ's likeness was the the goal of his preaching which is promised in the work that the God said that he would fulfill and in the preaching of the gospel and the preaching of the truth that men are brought to Christ and grown in Christ in Philippians 1 6 it says the God is committed to that work for those who come to Christ, because it says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. So what Paul was involved in was something that would actually have a fulfillment. If you're involved in gospel work, seeing people come to know the Lord, that's something that can actually be fulfilled. You'll see the end of that because God is committed to that kind of work. Everything else that you get involved in doesn't necessarily have the stamp of God's authority on it. But this work does. And it would not be right for Paul to neglect the preaching of the word because that was his priority of ministry. Even Jesus left healing ministry in Capernaum to preach in the surrounding towns. Listen to what it says in Mark 1, uh, 38. Let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby so that I may preach there also for that is what I came for. That's the words of Christ. He says, yeah, I know there's many people still surrounding me, people still wanting to be healed, but I've got to go to the next town because I need to preach. <laughs> And that's what I've come for. I need to preach. And there's three aspects of this gospel word, gospel message that Paul describes for us here. And like I said, these are just so theologically rich. Touch on so many doctrines just in rapid fire. But the first is this. The gospel is the gospel of God. The gospel is the gospel of God. And when Paul says that the message is the gospel of God, you can understand Paul to be saying that this is the good news about God or this is the good news that God gives, that he's the source of this good news. So you could understand it either way, as God is the object of the gospel or God is the source of the gospel. And then primarily what Paul is saying here is that God is the source of the gospel. It comes from him. Because in the next verse, it says that he promised it. So, so he's the one who's, who's giving it. He's promising this gospel beforehand. So the gospel, and this is point number one again, the gospel is initiated by the Father comes from the Father, initiated by the Father. Sometimes we can think about salvation as if the, the Father was reluctant to grant it. You know, there's, there's ways that people describe salvation as if, you know, God the Father was, you know, determined to judge the sinner. And then Jesus steps in and says, oh, no, no, Father, please, no, don't do that, don't do that. Let, let me go down and die for them first, you know, Please. Leave the sinners alone. Like, you know, he's got to hold back the abusive father from striking, you know, the entire world. No, father, don't do this. Hold back your wrath. As if that's the conversation that took place in eternity past. But that's not how we should think about God's eternal plan of redemption. It's not Christ convincing God the father to hold back his angry hands from judging the world so that he could save men. It was God's idea. It was the father's idea. His eternal purpose to save men. So yes, sinners are in the hands of an angry God, but sinners are still in his hands. (laughs) He's the one that's withholding the wrath. He's the one that's extending mercy. He's the one that's come up with the plan of redemption. The sinners are in his hands, and he's withholding the judgment. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19 says, Now all these things are from God. Listen to who it comes from, the source. It comes from God. All these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation in God here being the Father. He's reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, verse 19, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. All these things are from God. This is God's plan. It's his eternal purpose. There's scripture, we, we quote it all the time. We quote scriptures like this all the time. But I wonder if we think about the significance of these words. That this is God's plan. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. It was God the Father initiating the plan of our redemption. This is God's eternal plan. In Ephesians chapter 3, in verse 8, it speaks again about the ministry that, that Paul has. It speaks about this, uh, uh, this ministry that, that Paul has. And it speaks about the, the unfathomable riches of, of Christ. But again, there's this emphasis that it's the Lord's eternal plan that he's bringing about. This is God's eternal plan that he's bringing about in Christ. It's his purpose. Flip over to uh, Ephesians chapter 3 just real quick. Ephesians chapter 3. Just again to talk about this plan of God. Ephesians 3. Look at verse 8. Paul says, To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach. Again, there's that, that, that emphasis there to preach the, to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. Then drop down to verse 11. He says, This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out, he being God, carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is God's eternal purpose which he's carrying out through Jesus Christ. Our Lord. And that word for purpose there could be translated as plan or His resolve. It was God's eternal plan, His overarching purpose to bring us to Himself. So, one theologian speaking about this verse says it this way He says, There was never a moment when God had a blank mind or a time when God's plan with all of its parts were not fully determined. He never finally made up his mind about anything, He always had the plan. This eternal plan of redemption always included bringing salvation through Jesus Christ. And it was the Father's plan from all of eternity to do this. So it's not like after Adam and Eve sin, you know, he runs over to the emergency, you know, uh, box and breaks the glass, you know, breaking case of emergency. Oh my goodness, what, what in the world, Adam? I had no idea you'd do this. Thank God I got a plan over here. It's like, no. Got the emergency box. That, that was his eternal plan. I've always planned to redeem you. I've always planned to bring salvation to you. This is my eternal plan, my eternal purpose. And it was Christ who agreed, because he and the Father are one, sharing the same eternal purpose. It was the Son who agreed to come down and be the sacrifice. So initiated by the Father, fulfilled through the Son, who agreed to become the sacrifice for mankind. And this explains So much of the language that we find in Scripture. Because as Jesus prepared to go to the cross in Luke 22, in verse 22 it says, For indeed the Son of Man is going, He's going to the cross, as it has been determined. Determined by who? Determined by God. It has been determined by God the Father that I would go to the cross. This is His plan. I'm fulfilling His plan. When Peter reflected on the cross in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, it says, This man delivered over... By the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. It was God's plan to do this. Yes, it's a tragedy and you did it by the hands of sinful men, but it was God's predetermined plan. He purposed to do this. Later on in Acts chapter 4, verse 27, 28. For truly in this city there there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do, listen to this, whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. It was always the plan of God, the eternal plan of God. So when the book of Hebrews speaks about the death of Christ, it refers to his death as the blood of the eternal covenant. It was always the plan of God, the eternal plan and covenant within the Trinity itself that Jesus would come and be the sacrifice for sin and shed his blood. And all of that is to say that God initiated the plan of salvation, that the gospel is the gospel of God. It comes from him. It's God who loved the world. It's God who was reconciling the world to himself. It was God who determined to save the world through Jesus Christ. So don't think that the father was reluctant, the reluctant member of the Trinity in your salvation and that he had to be strong-armed. No, please, no, 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 don't, don't destroy them, please. That's not what was going on in eternity. This was God's plan and purpose to save you From all of eternity. God determined to set his affection on you from the beginning. And that's marvelous when you think about it. MacArthur put it this way. He says, there's never been a time when God did not love you. Think about that one. There's never been a time when God did not love you. His love is eternal. And he eternally predetermined to put this plan into action to save you. There's never been a time when God did not love you. So this gospel, I mean, there's, there's no doubt that it's good news, right? <laughs> who, who wouldn't want to share this good news? Look at, look at the plan of God. Look at what he's determined to do and that, that he's actually fulfilled it. He's brought it about. So this gospel is initiated by the Father. And number two, it's promised in his word. It's promised in his word. Look again at Romans chapter 1. It says, Paul, a bondservant of Christ, Jesus called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Promised in his word. That's point number two. It's promised in his word. S. Lewis Johnson says, while it is good news, it is not new news. (laughs) It's good news, but it's not new news. And Paul demonstrates through this letter that the gospel that he preaches is rooted in the Old Testament text. Fourteen times in the book of Romans it says, it is written, it is written, it is written. The book of Romans has actually been called the theology of the Old Testament. So it represents the gospel not as a break with the past, but the fulfillment of it, the consummation of it. As one author quoted, uh, uh, said this, uh, you might have heard it said, the old is by the new explained and the new is in the old contained. Or another way, the new is in the old concealed and the old is by the new revealed. They work together. One, one is revealing what, what's contained in the other. I mean, it was all there from the beginning, but, but the, the New Testament just kind of you know, brings it to light. Let me show you all that was back there. It was all there from the beginning. It was in his word. It's the connection between the promise and the fulfillment. So what has unfolded in the gospel is just what God had promised to do all along. And when Paul here refers to the prophets which he promised beforehand through his prophets he he's embracing all of the old testament scriptures In that statement, the prophets, Uh, David was considered a prophet, Acts chapter 2 and uh, verse 30, Moses was considered a prophet, Deuteronomy 18 and 18. And in uh, Luke chapter 24, uh, when Jesus is explaining uh, the the Old Testament and showing how it pointed uh, to himself, it says that he went through all of the Old Testament, through Moses and the prophets, to show how that pointed to him. So so when he, here in Romans, talks about uh, the prophets, he's embracing all of the Old Testament scriptures, which he says right there, in the holy scriptures. And it's incredible to think about biblical history and just how much the gospel was a part of that biblical history. The gospel was always there. That that thread was throughout the whole Old Testament leading to Christ. So you have the first preaching of the gospel. Just take you on a little tour of the Old Testament, okay? You have the first preaching of the gospel in Genesis chapter 3. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, uh, her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. What's, what's going on there? What's going on there? We talked about this earlier, but uh, the word there for enmity between the woman and Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman, talking about the conflict that would now happen between Eve, who's the only woman at the time, and Satan. So she's the only woman in existence at this point, and she would hate the enemy that brought her into ruin. So there's that conflict between Eve and Satan. But there's also something that's said about her seed and the serpent seed. And that, that seed could be used in a collective sense. The offspring of Satan would now be an enmity against the offspring of Eve, those who are of faith. So there's a, a conflict between believers and unbelievers now. And John 8:44 talks about unbelievers as being of their father the devil. In Matthew 23, uh, Jesus calls the religious leaders a brood of serpents, you vipers, you're children of the devil. Cain in uh, 1 John 3.12 is called of the evil one who slew his brother. So there would be faithful children and there would be unfaithful children who would belong to the devil. So there's this ongoing conflict uh, between the faithful and the unfaithful. And then there's this conflict that's also mentioned between the singular seed because it says he he shall bruise you on the head. So it's talking now about a singular seed and you shall bruise him on the heel. So there's a promise of a seed who would come, a singular seed who would come, who would crush the serpent's head and do away with the ruin of the, the fall. There's a promise that there's going to be a deliverer, even as far back as Genesis 3.15. There's going to be a, one who is triumphant, one who's going to give a mortal blow to the enemy Put an end to the conflict and bring in peace and blessing. There's coming one who's going to do this. And the search for the seed was on. Promises made again in Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. Make your name great. This is God speaking to Abraham. You shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. There's coming a blessing for all of the families of the earth and it's gonna come through you, Abraham. There's coming salvation on the earth. The salvation is coming. In Genesis 49, it was revealed to, to Jacob that salvation would come through a future king. Genesis 49, verse 10: the scepter shall not depart from Judah. So it narrows it down to Judah, the, st- the ruler staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, the one for whom it's appointed. And to him shall be the obedience of all the peoples. There's one who's coming who's going to rule. And the obedience of all the peoples will be to him. That person is coming. He's on the way. David was told that the king of peace would come through his descendants. 2 Samuel 7. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. Then it goes on to say, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. There's coming an eternal king. He's coming through you. He's going to bring peace and blessing all the obedience will be to him. He's going to triumph over the enemy, crush Satan beneath his feet. The same king was anticipated in the prophet Isaiah. He wouldn't be born of a natural birth. He would be born of a virgin, Isaiah seven fourteen, Isaiah 9, it says that a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. He's coming. He's coming. There's there's one who's coming, and he's he's gonna bring in peace. All the governments are gonna bow to him. There's the one who's coming, he's gonna be the, the one who crushes the, the head of the serpent. Then Daniel speaks about him in Daniel chapter seven. He says in verse 13, I kept looking in the night, visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. He came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And then there's so many other prophecies we don't even have the time to get into. Micah 5.2 tells you where he'll be born in Bethlehem, Ephrathah. A ruler is going to come. Zechariah 9 tells you how he's going to be presented to Jerusalem Endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Isaiah 53 lets us know that he's going to be rejected, despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Verse five says that he will be pierced through for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Psalm 22 goes on to talk about the details of the crucifixion. They pierce my hands and my feet. I remember reading Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 to a Jewish man, and he says, why are you reading the New Testament? I don't believe in the New Testament. You might want to look again. <laughs> you might want to look again. That's not the New Testament. That's your Old Testament. And he's like double-checking. It's like, I didn't know that was in there. It's talking about Christ. It's obvious it's talking about Christ. Pierce my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look. They stare at me. They divide my garments among them. For my clothing they cast lots. Isaiah 16 says, He will be resurrected. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. He did not decay. And throughout the Old Testament, there are these prophecies about the one who's going to bring salvation until we get to John the Baptist, who says, Behold the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God. He's here, the one who takes away the sins of the world. This is the one who's going to deal with sin once and for all. He's going to bring in peace and blessing. This is the one that we've been anticipating. He is the king who will rule over the entire earth and his dominion is an everlasting dominion. It will not pass away and his kingdom will not be destroyed. And Paul prepares the believers in Rome for this good news, but before he does that he wants to let them know that everything that I'm about to tell you is found in your Old Testament. (laughs) I'm not coming to you with new news. I'm coming to you with old news. This is news that has already been declared from Genesis chapter 3 and pulled all the way through the Old Testament record. I'm declaring to you something that you should already know about, but I want to point the way back to Christ. Everything that I'm going to tell you is going to be consistent with what you already know. Test me according to the biblical record. And that's the test for all true sound doctrine is that you can test what you're hearing by the word of God. You need to test it. There was an accusation that Paul was against the law, but Paul says, no, I'm, I'm consistent with it. And if it's not consistent, you throw it out. That's the test of orthodoxy, and Paul welcomed it. Test me according to the Scriptures. See if the Scriptures bear this out. And enough with these preachers who think you don't have to test them according to the Scriptures. <laughs> Where do pastors get this idea that they shouldn't be checked? I've, talked, I've heard from ministers who cover themselves with the scriptures out of context. You know, touch not the Lord's anointed. Do my prophets no harm. Touch not the Lord's anointed. And what does that mean? (laughs) What what is that supposed to mean? Touch not the Lord's anointed. I mean, Paul wanted himself to be checked by the scriptures. He gave the scriptures as a a defense. And now, now you want me to just listen to you? Because all of a sudden you're anointed, right? Now I'm supposed to listen to what you have to say? Touch not the Lord's anointed. What does that mean in its context? It was used for Abimelech not touching Abraham's wife. And it was used of David not taking Saul's life. So unless I'm taking your wife or I'm putting you to death, you can't use that text, okay? (laughs) And how do we know that? I mean, the the, the prophets had, had to get checked, right? Even the prophets got checked to see if they told the truth. Deuteronomy chapter 18, you remember that? It says but the prophet who speaks the word presumptuously in my name which i have not commanded him to speak or which he speaks in the name of other gods that prophet shall die seems like a whole lot of people were given permission to touch the prophet and do him some harm <laughs> yeah maybe we need to make that a a sign touch the prophet and do him some harm you know if he's not if he's speaking presumptuously he's not pointing to the true god what he says doesn't come to come come to pass A whole lot of people were touching the prophet. But we have these lying prophets today who just get away with it. We'd have a lot less lying prophets if we held to the Old Testament standard, wouldn't we? You know, you told me that would happen. It didn't happen. Where's my rock, right? (laughs) A lot, lot less prophets going around. We're supposed to ask questions. We're supposed to check. And Paul's habit was to be checked by the scriptures. No, check me. Acts 13, Paul ministered in Basidian, Antioch, Pisidian Antioch, ministered in the synagogues. In Acts 13, 23, it says, From the descendants of this man, according to the promise of God, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus Christ. Look, look in the Scriptures. It's according to the Scriptures. Acts 17, Paul ministered in Thessalonica. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them. Acts 17, and verse 2. For three Sabbaths, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Acts 17, Paul's ministry in Berea, Acts chapter 17 and verse 10, Paul and Silas went away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether or not these things were so. We're going to check them by the scriptures. So Paul didn't come with just a word from the Lord. I got a word from the Lord for you. No, if you come with a word from the Lord, you better come with a word from the Lord, right? Right? <laughs> You better have a word from the Lord written that's going to back you up with your word from the Lord. I need to see it here before I hear it over there. And that's what what Paul, Paul, Paul welcomed that. Yeah, check me. I can prove what I'm saying is true from the scriptures. I can prove it by the book. And if he couldn't prove it by the book, he didn't give anybody a reason to listen to him. And if I can't back up what I'm saying by the book, I don't give you a reason to listen to me. Check me. Please check me. Paul said himself in Galatians 1.8, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. Paul Paul places himself under a curse. If I depart from what I'm telling you now, I'm to be accursed. So, So the minister is underneath the word of God just like everybody else. The minister is not above the word. Touch not the Lord's anointed. What are you talking about? I'm going to touch you all over the place with this thing, right? Don't tell me not to touch you. Paul placed himself under the curse of the, of, of the Lord. If I depart from this book, so bring the book. And this tells us something about the scriptures, doesn't it? It tells us that the words of the prophets are the words of the Lord. Theologians refer to it as the dual authorship of scripture yes moses david and isaiah wrote but it was god who was speaking through their words their mouth god's words through his spirit he superintended the entire process so that what they wrote down were his words so in romans 1 verse 2 it says that he promised beforehand through his prophets he's the one who's promising but he's doing it through the prophets dual authorship it's coming from god but it's coming through men his promise their writing he carried them along, 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. He uses the, the Greek word uh, epileusis. It uh, speaks about a, a releasing, a setting free, and really refers more to origin. You know, nobody comes up with this on their own. Verse 21, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. It doesn't come from you. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. God is moving you to speak what you speak In the Scriptures, men were carried along by the Spirit. Same word used for a ship being driven along by the wind in Acts 27 and 17. And what they wrote were the words of God. 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is inspired by God. This also says something about the way we're to treat this book, doesn't it? Because these are not just ordinary words. As we're going through the book of, of Romans, these are not ordinary words. These are holy words. And that's what he says here. Through his prophets in the holy scriptures. Holy scriptures. Why do we have such a high regard for the Bible? Because holy men, moved by the Holy Spirit, wrote the holy scriptures. This is a holy book. And these for us are the words of eternal life. We, 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 we can't access eternal life without the truth of the scriptures. Where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. There's only one place to go. So, so right here we've got the nature of scripture. It's holy. We've got the inspiration of Scripture. It comes from God. We've got the dual authorship. It comes from God through men. And the necessity of the Scriptures. It's, we, we need it. You, you could add to that the necessity of the Scriptures. I can't find this anywhere else. We don't learn this message outside of the truth of Scripture. And that's why Paul is pointing back to it. Somehow this has to be communicated. And it's communicated through the Scriptures. And finally, this Gospel is the Gospel concerning his son, The gospel is about Jesus Christ in verse 3, concerning his son. And in the next two verses, we'll learn about the deity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, the kingship of Christ, the lordship of Christ, the incarnation of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the doctrine of the Holy Trinity, all touched on. And again, I'm not doing that today because there is no way possible you know, the, the kids would be like, you know, screaming in the background. You, you guys would have, a, have a, a mob on your hands pretty soon. But we're not in a rush, are we? <laughs> we're not in a rush. Just working our way through the book of Romans, and there is so much that this book has to yield to us. We're looking forward to this. But uh, as we close our time together, uh, the first point of application is don't confuse the gospel with the implications of the gospel. The gospel is a message. Don't confuse the gospel with the implications of the gospel. And every implication is not a necessary implication. What do I mean by that? There are certain things that are necessary that if I receive the gospel, there are certain things that are necessary that I also have to live a holy life, right? You know, First John talks about, you know, all the tests of a true believer, that I believe the truth about Christ, you know, that, that I, I have a love for the brethren, uh, that, that I, I live a holy life, you know, that I'm not going to just continue in my sin. Those are necessary implications of the gospel. The gospel comes with that. But then there's those other implications of the gospel that you know, everybody doesn't necessarily have the same ministry. Everybody doesn't necessarily have the same passion. You know, so you know, you know, if, if somebody says, you know, if, if you're not doing this, you're not being a faithful Christian, if, if your church isn't involved in this, ministry, this movement, you know, I don't know where you are. You're not being a faithful Christian. It could be an implication of the gospel, but it's not a necessary implication of the gospel. Just because I believe in the gospel doesn't mean that, you know, like I, I was somebody showed me a post, you know, earlier. It's like, I can't believe if, if, if a pastor, if a pastor is not in the ghetto, I don't know if he's faithful. Does every pastor got to go to the ghetto? Is that the only way to be faithful to Christ? It could be an implication. You know, for some pastors, yes, that's where I have to go. Yes, I need to go overseas. I need to do this. I need to do that. But is it a necessary implication for all pastors? No. You know, just like when people say, if if you're a faithful Christian, you got to sign up for this petition. You got to be involved in this political campaign. I don't know how you could be faithful to the Lord if you're not involved in it. Don't let people heap guilt on you if it's not a necessary implication of the gospel. It could be an implication of the gospel for you but it doesn't mean that it has to be for me. So don't confuse the gospel with the implications of it. Also, we need to focus on the goal of salvation and not the steps along the way. Focus on the goal. What's, what's the goal of our salvation? We're, we're, we've been saved by the initiation of God, you know, through the sacrifice of his son and the sealing of his spirit until the day of redemption. And on that day I will be perfected. I will be glorified. You know, that's that's the end goal of my salvation. You know, the end of the gospel is Christ-likeness. So, what am I supposed to focus on as a primary emphasis in my life now? Christ-likeness. So, so I'm supposed to focus on the goal of my salvation and not all the, the steps along the way, the, the detours, you know, it's like I might do this, I might do that, but what is my goal? My goal is Christ-likeness. Don't, don't get distracted by like the, the side issues, okay? Focus on the goal of your salvation. Are you being Christ-like? Are you humbling yourself under his word? Are you loving God's people? Are you obedient to the truth? Do you believe the, the truth about who Christ is? Like if, if that's where you are, just keep going in that direction. And don't let somebody tell you, oh, you're not being faithful if you're not involved in this over here or that over there. Focus on the goal of your salvation. Also, you need to be encouraged Uh, that the goal of your salvation will be reached. (laughs) There's a lot of things that people might get involved with now, like they get involved in this movement, that movement. They have no idea if any of those things are going to be accomplished. They have no idea. But we can be encouraged that the goal of our salvation will be accomplished. In uh, Romans chapter 8, in verse 30, it says, "...and these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified." And these whom he justified, he also glorified. That is a goal that will be reached for every believer. And you can be encouraged by that. That God is going to bring me all the way to glory. That I won't be lost. That the end goal of my salvation will be fulfilled. And uh, we also need to rest in the promise that every promise of God's word will be fulfilled. Rest in that. You know, as Paul is talking about uh, all that the scriptures told, foretold, Like, all of these things came to pass in time, right? The Messiah came. And all the other promises that are revealed in the Scriptures, all of those will also be fulfilled as well. So we can look forward to that day when Christ comes back and takes over the world and his kingdom will have no end. Like, that is going to come because it's been promised in the Scriptures. And that's regardless of whether or not you get involved in a political campaign or not. That kingdom is still coming. So don't let anybody confuse you to say, well, if you don't do this, the kingdom of God isn't going to... His kingdom's going to come, all right? His kingdom's coming. Regardless of what I do, I can't stop the kingdom of God from coming because it's been promised by his eternal plan and purpose. It's promised by God that it's going to happen. Amen? (laughs) Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, so much for uh, this time that we've had together. Uh, Father, uh, these words are so rich. Father, we thank you for uh, your truth, uh, Lord, that just uh, gives us such encouragement. And uh, Father, we pray that uh, you, Lord, would be honored and glorified as we uh, continue to work through uh, this book of Romans. So many riches to mine out. And uh, Father, I pray that you would uh, continue to uh, uh, teach us, uh, Lord, through your word. And uh, Father, we pray that you would be glorified and honored in our lives. In Jesus' name, we praise you and give you thanks. Amen.
0: You have been listening to George Lawson Jr. of Baltimore Bible Church. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events and where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserves all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating all printed media, CDs, and digital files.